You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to another episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I'm your host, Tony Lopes, and with me today is Anthony Lucidonio Jr., better known as Tony Luke Jr., an American entrepreneur, restaurateur, actor, TV personality, way back to PRISM, if you folks remember that, musician, media host, and now an anti-addiction stigma activist and also reviving his musical career. Tony, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you, Tony? Yeah, I'm really fantastic. Thank you so much for this opportunity. This, oh, this is like a bucket list item for me, by the way. <laughs> you're being too kind. Well, you're a legend in Philadelphia. You're so. being way too kind. <laughs> Listen, when I was telling people, you're not going to believe who I'm going to get to sit down with and record a podcast with, Tony Luke, people were going, wow, that's amazing. So it's cool. All two people. <laughs> <laughs> So Tony co-founded the Cheesesteak and Sandwich, I'd call it an empire, but franchise Tony Luke's. Tony Luke, his brother Nikki, and their father bought a property near the expressway in South Philadelphia where no one at the time wanted to build anything in that area to open up a small sandwich shop. To compete with other local businesses, the original Tony Luke's stand offered a more diversified menu, initially offering roast pork sandwiches, hoagies, and other fare, but no cheesesteaks. As is typical with Tony Luke, he gave the people what they wanted about six months in, eventually adding cheesesteaks to the menu. Soon thereafter, Philly Mag ranks Tony Luke's as both the best roast pork sandwich and the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia on the same issue. That doubled their business almost overnight and led Tony Luke to taking over the store's marketing. Eventually, the business grew to include several locations in the Philadelphia area and a line of frozen sandwiches. Through a partnership with the Ristelli Foods Group, the business now has several franchised locations worldwide, including in Bahrain. Tony Luke's would turn into a household name and Tony Luke Jr. would become the face of the franchise, starring in TV and radio commercials and even facing off with Bobby Flay in a throwdown and even getting his own show on Spike TV, Frankenfood. But before his father had even thought to build the sandwich shop, Tony Luke Jr. had already lived multiple lives from being a rough and tumble South Philly kid to a budding Hollywood movie star in L.A., to scoring a record deal as the crooner of an R&B band, Tony Luke was born in South Philly and attended Philadelphia's High School for the Creative and Performing Arts, Kappa, for those of you who are from the city, in its first year. Tony Luke credits Kappa as having saved his life and wishes that the majority of the people that he grew up with in his 10-block radius neighborhood could have gone to Kappa to have the same experiences that he had. During his time at Kappa, Tony hustled his way into a cast party for Rocky II in Philly, which we'll get to in a second. In a darker time during his life, using methamphetamine and other drugs as a teenager, Tony Luke experienced some hardships. Tony now uses that experience as well as the fighting and hustling of his youth to explain to kids that these difficulties can be overcome. After high school, Tony Luke married at the age of 18 and was also a state kickboxing champion from 1982 to 1983. Unbelievable bio. And we're not going <laughs> to get a lot of research. <laughs> so, Tony, this I don't even know where to begin. Normally, we start with how you got, you know, started with your entrepreneurial venture. And we talk about Tony Luke's, but we can't start there. I think we have to go all the way back to your audition at Kappa. And let me just take a quick moment, a quick time out to thank 
Kevin Schmidlin of the Philly Who podcast who introduced us. Oh, Kev. He's an amazing, amazing, amazing collaborator. Thank you so much, Kevin. Let's start with Kappa. It's the first ever year for Kappa in Philadelphia. It's the Creative and Performing Arts School, a magnet school, sort of geared towards helping kids from the city get the opportunity to really focus on drama, creative arts, music, all yeah, those creative things. Creative writing, dance. And it's the first ever class. You show up to audition. Walk us through that. Well, I was actually, um, I got kicked out of Bishop Newman High School and I went to work, but I was young. I was 15, I think. And um, there was an ad in the newspaper for an audition for a new type of school called Creative and Performing Arts. And I remember I was working and my father came up to me and he said, you want to be this uh, music, drama, actor. There's a school. You got to go back to school. You're 15. You can't go back to work. You can't just keep working. You have to go back to school. So, oh, God, th thousands of kids. Like, it was crazy. Wow. I remember, you know, pulling up and, you know, getting off the bus. And it was like there were kids from ev everywhere, like everywhere. And, you know, I had this, you know, kind of South Philly attitude going in. Um, and they made you do, you know, whatever your um, your major was or your minor was. If you were, uh, mine's was a drama major and a music minor. So you would have to do, you know, a reading from a play and then you would, um, you know, have to sing if you were going to do music. Mm -hmm. And then you went through all these different steps. They would interview you. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, there's you know, thousands of kids. I'm like, I'm never... Never getting in. This is really a waste of time. But I always loved film. I loved music from when I was a kid. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I did know that I wanted it to be some type of performer or entertainer. I, I always knew that from a very, very young age. So I go in, we do the audition. I don't know if I'm doing well. Um, so everyone has to get up on stage. And they have to be something who wants to be a tree, you know, who's, who's <laughs> a cow, you know, who's a butterfly. And so they look at me and they were like, well, what do you want to be? I'm like, I don't know. They're like, you can be a dog. And I'm thinking in my head, could this get any dumber? Weirder. Yeah, yeah. Of course, right. So I figure in my head, if I'm going to be a dog, then I'm going to be a dog. So I remember getting on all fours on stage and I was barking and, you know, kids were mooing who were cows and you know, people that were butterflies were flapping their arms that had wings. And we were on a stage and um, Lenny Daniels, God bless her, was um, one of the teachers from the drama department. And she was one of the people that were going to pick who mm -hmm. gets in. And then there were Jerry Saucerman and Ken Horoff and, and everyone was was at the table. So I decided if I was going to do, you know, be my character, I would be my character. So I jumped off of the stage and Lenny was sitting, Lenny Daniels was sitting in a chair and it was summertime. So it was like really hot in there. And, you know, she had a you know, long dress on and I decided to crawl like a dog and then I kind of inserted my head between her calves 
like a dog. Calves. I said calves. Don't go to the next place. It was literally her calves, like a dog would do. You know, a dog comes in, you know, and she jumped out of that chair laughing so hysterical. And I'm like kind of wagging my butt like I'm wagging my tail. And she got the humor, thank God, in right, what I was right. doing. For anyone who's listening, there was nothing sexual or dirty about it. My head was facing the floor and, you know, it was her calves and ankles that I I placed my head in. And um, she literally could not stop. She just was like, this guy is crazy, this kid. And then I went back up on stage and then I went to audition for singing. So I had to do something acapella. Wow. And I'll never forget, I did uh, a track called Always and Forever. And I did that, you know, acapella. I was like super, super nervous. So I leave there and I go, you, you know, you jumped off the stage. You made a poor woman jump out of her chair. There's no way on God's earth you are, you know, you're not getting in. And there were so many incredibly talented people. And I I don't know how long, I'll be honest, I can't tell you how much longer it was, but then I received the letter mm-hmm. and it said, congratulations, you have been accepted to the high school for creative wow. performing arts. And I say it saved my life because this is, you know, 19, what was it? 77, maybe I think 77. I'm getting old now. So <laughs> years get by me. Um, I lived in a 10 by 10 block area. I mean, you know, every Philly was made up of all these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So it was like you hated anyone outside of the 10 by 10. It didn't matter what what someone's race was or religion. If they weren't in your 10 by 10 block area, you, they were your enemy. Like basically that's, you know, was the mentality that the street was back then. And here I'm in school with such a diverse group of people and, mm-hmm. and all these different religions and nationalities. And so right away, I, you know, went on the defensive thinking, well, everyone here wants to hurt me. I mean, that was kind of my mentality. Right. And I remember getting there and I remember after the first week thinking, like, everyone has lied to me. My entire life, everyone I went to school with were amazing, incredible, beautiful human beings. And it changed. It kind of opened my eyes to something outside of those 10 by 10 blocks. And it introduced me to different cultures and different religions. And all of these things I got to, to, to see and understand. And it changed the way I looked at the world. And I developed friendships and relationships that to this day I still have. And that's why I say it saved my life because I was really going in a direction where I would either be, would have been dead or I would have been in prison. Right. And so, okay, now that leads us to your love of film and all things creative. And you find out that Rocky II is having a cast party in Philadelphia. So you tell really us about did that your story. Research, <laughs> this is in Kev's episode of Philly Who, but um, but I had to ask it live just because I thought it was such a cool experience and I want to hear about this. All right, so we're we're in school. Mm-hmm. I find out that they're doing the Rocky II luncheon, and 
I want to say it was at the Barclays Hotel. Like, I want it again, or the Warwick. I'm not 100% sure, uh, but I know it was like around Rittenhouse Square. And our school was on Broad and Spruce. Mm-hmm. So I convinced my friend, Ralph Satterthwaite, to cut school and go to the luncheon. And he was like, we're not going to get, like, we're not getting in. It's like, it's a luncheon. It's Rocky too. We're never going to, and I'm like, all you have to do, Ralph, is just follow my lead. So we walk (laughs) into the, into the hotel and I said, uh, yeah, Tony Lucidonio, Ralph Satterthwaite, I'm here to pick up my passes. And the woman said, excuse me. I'm like, press. Now I'm, we're, you know, we're, we're 16, you know what I mean? Actually 15, 15 or 16. And they were like, press. I'm like, yeah, press. Have you ever heard of the high school of creative and performing arts? It's right around the corner. Well, we write for the paper and we're doing a whole story. I said, I talked to Erwin Winkler, you know, a while back. And he said he would leave tickets because I did my homework. You can't try to con your way into someplace and not do your homework. Right. So I knew Aaron Winkler was like the producer and I thought, okay, well, she'll give me passes and I'll no. So she picks up the phone and she calls someone and I hear her go, no, I don't, I don't know. What is your name? Tony Lucidonio, Ralph Satisway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they said, yeah. Okay. Hold on. And it's gives me the phone and I'm like, hello. It's like, who's this? I'm like, Tony Lucidonio. And he, he goes, this is Erwin Winkler. <laughs> and I go, yes, sir. And he goes, we spoke, you, you, you spoke to me about passes to get in. And I said, well, I didn't, I, I spoke to your secretary and she, when he goes, well, which office, New York or LA? And I'm thinking, oh, where would he probably not be? And, <laughs> and I think, and again, I, I honestly don't remember if I said New York or Philly, but whatever it was, I said, I got it right. Cause he's like, Oh, well, you know, they don't think, all right, put her back on the phone. So they give me these two <laughs> passes and I'm, you know, I'm elbowing Ralph. Like I told you, just, you know, follow my lead. So here I am. I'm strutting up with this South Philly strut. We get on the elevator, we go upstairs and I get out. Now in front of the dining hall is the security guard. And he's not a big guy. He's, I wasn't tall. I'm five, nine. So he had to be like five, seven thin, and we go and he goes, whoa, 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 where are you going? And I'm like, press. And I'm showing him the things. <laughs> but now he's got a South Philly accent. I hear it. So he ain't taking any shit. And he's like, I don't know how you got those passes, but you're not getting in. And I'm like, I'm not getting in. Who are you to tell me <laughs> I'm not, you know, and I'm going off now. Now, Ralph is like starting to be like, maybe we should go. I'm like, go down here. We were press and we're the, and now I'm getting loud and I'm a rent a cop. You're some a big man with a job, you know, I'm really going off. And then this guy walks over in a three piece suit, thin, thin, dressed to the nines. He goes, excuse me, you know, what's going on? I'm like, I'll tell you what's going on. This big shot, you know, rent a cop, tell me I can't get in. I'm pressed. So the guy in the three piece starts laughing hysterically. Right. And he goes, it's all right they're with me. They can come in with me. So now I want to see Sylvester. So like, I want to, I want to be in Rocky three. You know what I mean? Like I, I want right. to meet him and convince him that I'm the actor that he needs in Rocky three. That's the whole reason you're there. It's the whole reason I'm there. <laughs> so we start walking in and there's all these people and everything. 
And this guy starts walking and we're kind of walking away from all the main tables. And we go to this single table that's kind of not butted up against any other tables. So now I'm thinking, oh, I'm sure, this guy's got to bring me in. We're sitting in the nose, Blake. Who's going, who am I going to see, you know, <laughs> over here? I'm like, oh, great, great job. So he sits down and he goes, all right, kid. He's got a, you know, heavy New York accent. All right, kid. What you do? How'd you get in here? So I'm like, well, you know, I got to bring this. Come on. And I'm like, all right, well, I found out this guy, Erwin Winkler, he does this thing. He's the producer. And I'm like, so I go to the lady. I'm like, oh, Erwin. And I'm like mimicking him now. So he gets on the phone. He's like, hello. And I'm like, hey, can it we spoke. He's like, oh, I don't remember. I'm like, oh, yeah, your secretary did from the other. Oh, and I'm like, this jackass sends me the, you know. And I'm really like laying it on, you know, thick. And he's laughing hysterically. And he goes, he goes, ah, he goes, that's, you know, brilliant. He said, brilliant. So Ralph's sitting and, and I, you know, I, oh, I try to remember how nuts. I remember telling the guard, he's like, you got to go. I'm like, I want my fruit cup. Like I remember <laughs> it was a luncheon and I'm like, I want my fruit cup. Like it's a luncheon. So, so uh, we sit at the table and now I'm just sitting there. Now I don't know who he is. Like I have no concept of who he is. Mm -hmm. And I love Rocky. Like I love Rocky one, you know, we'll see Rocky two and, you know, I didn't see Rocky two yet because it wasn't out. Right. So, so all of a sudden I, yeah, I see like Carl Weathers and I'm like, Oh my God, it's Carl Weathers. And he's like walking through the thing and he's coming closer. And I'm like, I'm hitting I'm like, he's coming here. And, and then he comes over and he sits at the same table that I'm sitting at. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, who is this guy? And he goes, Hey, this is uh what is it again? It's Tony Lucidoni over like Carl Weathers, like, hey, Carl, then here comes Talia Shaw. Like the whole cast, and I'm thinking, who are you? Like, who <laughs> is this guy? So now this other guy walks up, and this guy burst out laughing. And I'm like, what's funny? He goes, oh, I need to introduce you to someone. So this guy comes, and he sits down, and he goes, uh, hey, he goes, Tony Lucidonio, Ralph Satterthwaite, say hello to Arwen Winkler. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, uh, how are you, Mr. Winkley? He goes, Tony Lucidonio. He goes, did we just talk on the, did you get, I'm like, yeah. He goes, you got your tickets. I see. He goes, yeah, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You know, now, but I want to see Stallone. And here he comes. Crowd goes crazy in the lunch. And mm -hmm. They're like roped off. You know, now I see people looking like, well, who are they? Are they two new guys in the mood? So I'm loving it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they bring the food, I'm eating, I'm looking at Ralph going, you want to be sitting in school? We're sitting with the kid. So here comes Stallone, and, and he says to me, uh, hey, uh, Sly, this is Tony Lucidone. He goes, yeah, yeah, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Yeah. And then he sits down. Right. And then they're talking, and I go, excuse me. I go, who are you? And he goes, I'm, I'm an actor. And I go, oh. You're in the new Rocky? And he goes, yeah. I go, were you in the first Rocky? And he goes, uh, yeah. I'm like, dude, you aren't in the first. I, I watched the first Rocky. You have like a little bit part, like something, you know. And he goes, no. He goes, I play Paulie. I'm like, Paulie? Burt Young plays Paulie. <laughs> He's like, yeah, my, I am Burt Young. 
I'm like, nah, Bert Young's fat, <laughs> you know? And he starts laughing and he goes, I lost a lot of weight. And then I'm thinking, oh my God, it's Paul. So now I'm like, oh, now I'm like, my boy, boy, you know? <laughs> so, and he got up and we had a great, we had a really amazing time, mm -hmm. but I need to talk. So he takes out a card and he puts his cell number. I mean, his uh, office number on there. And he says, um, talk to Tammy who's my assistant and uh, come to LA and I'll take care of you. I'm like, really? He goes, you just completely remind me of me. He's like, and I love South Philly. I'm a New York guy. He goes, but I love South Philly and you're crazy. And I like that. He said, and I'll take care of you. So then we're getting ready to leave. And he goes, Hey, did you guys eat yet? Cause if you want to have a limo, I was going to go eat. Do you want to go eat? And then here comes Stallone. And I go, no, 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 no. I got to talk to Sylvester. Wow. I got to talk to Stallone. And he goes, all right, go talk to Stallone. He goes, but here's my card. Give me a call. So I'm trying to get him and everyone's around him. And, and then he gets in the elevator. I'll never forget this as long as I have. He gets in the elevator. And I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. I said, Mr. Stallone, Mr. Stallone. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, listen, I, I, how do I get in, in the next Rocky movie? And he goes, you audition like everybody else, and then the doors close. <laughs> <laughs> That's a true story. It's unbelievable. Should have went and had freaking dinner. <laughs> Would have been better. <laughs> but you got your fruit cup at least, right? I got my fruit cup. Right. I got my lunch. Ralph was completely, you know, he was blown away. We had such a really, really good time. That's cool. But my my I think my way of thinking was always I. Don't tell me I can't do something. Right. So th there, that's what I really wanted, wanted to ask you about, because I, I kind of relate in many ways that frequently I don't see obstacles. When I need to get to an objective, I just say, that's what we're going to do. And then we'll figure out the rest of it right. when we get there. And that's what you did with this, right? Yeah, because I was stupid. See, when you're dumb, <laughs> you don't even realize that there are obstacles. Right. So right. I think it's right. your ignorance and stupidity to go, oh, I could do it. I think if I was educated and knew what I was up against, I'd be like, oh, I can't do this yet. No, but maybe that's where the genius is because- you don't see limits. So you say, I got to go meet Stallone because I want to be in Rocky three and I'm a 16 or 17 year old kid going to Kappa. All I got to do is meet the guy and I'll get my shot. And you made it happen. So how did that experience then later lead to all of your entrepreneurial success ultimately with Tony Luke's with turning it into this massive franchise to this household brand? I mean, Jim's, Gino's, all the cheesesteak places had been around for a long time. Which are all great, by the way. Right, right. <laughs> Truthfully, they're yeah. all great. Um, but, but what do you see in yourself that maybe others don't, or you see a situation differently than your friend, for example, who just said, what are we going to do? We're going to go down there. How are you going to meet Stallone? And you, you almost willed it. You, you basically said, no, we're going to go down there. We're going to get into this luncheon and we're going to meet Stallone. I, I think with me now, again, I'm you know, everything in life that happens to you changes you. Right. And I, 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 I don't want to misquote, but I believe it was Will Smith. Who's, who's an incredibly good man. I think it was Will who said, if you're the same at 50 as you were at 30, then you didn't get it. Right. And I am very different now than I was before. Sure. Um, I think, though, with me, 
I believe in myself. And I believe that my gut leads me where I need to be. Now, have I made mistakes? Thousands. But I tried. I always tried not to repeat the same mistake. I believe that mistakes are something that is absolutely essential. There's no greater learning tool mm-hmm. than making a mistake. I mean, you can read all the books you want and, you know, you can take all the tests you want. But the truth is, until you get in the thick of it, until you do it, you realize that, you know, the theory of something is one thing. Um, the actual practice of it could be something completely different. And you, 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 you need to believe in who you are. Now, with that being said, you can't be delusional. Like you can't be someone who is tone deaf and can never sing in key and go, my dream is to be a famous singer. Right. I mean, those those things are, they're just unrealistic. Yeah, you and I are never playing in the NBA. <laughs> right, I'm not playing in the NBA. <laughs> Less I want a heart attack in the first two minutes. But but there there are certain... There are certain limitations that you you just now again. I'm not saying if someone is tone deaf, but they really want to be a singer, that they shouldn't try to overcome that. Right. So that don't mis misunderstand what I'm saying. There are absolutely certain things and and disabilities that can be overcome and are overcome every day by amazing people. But the truth is, as much as we'd like to think that anything that we want is in our reach, that's that's not reality. Mm-hmm. There are limitations. I know what my strengths are. I know what my weaknesses are. I try every day in life to strengthen my weaknesses, and I try every day in my life to share my strengths with other people to help their weaknesses become stronger because that's how I... I, I believe we're... Every, this I do believe. Every single individual that is, is born, every single individual that is walking the face of the earth is gifted with something. I share that belief with you. I I do. I really do. And the sad thing is when people try to beat that gift out of them and make them doubt their gift and make them that's why I've I've always said, you know, the greatest crime to me of all is to um, to discourage someone who has a love for something, because if you truly love something, you'll find a way. But like I said, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not six foot four, six foot five. I'm five nine. I'm a hundred pounds overweight. I'm not playing for the NBA. I'm fifty eight, so I could want to play. For the NBA, all that I want, it's never going to happen right, now. Right. Those are some re- realities that those are truths that just are what they are. But I don't I don't believe any child is ever limited in anything that they do. And I believe it is it is not just something that we should do. I believe it is something that we have to do as adults who have a gift in something to do everything and anything we can to help nurture that gift, you know, for children to reach the heights that they, they can reach. And I think, you know, it's corny what I'm about to say, but some things that are true 
are corny because there's truth in them. And it's true, you know, you never stand as tall as when you bend down to pick someone up. And that is a belief that I've learned over the years through everything that, you know, that I've been through. And I believe it more now than I ever have in my entire life. So I listen to my gut and I move forward. And if there's a wall and I can't break it down, I'll go around it. You find a way. I'll find, I will find a way. And I, and I also believe that things, things happen in the time that they should because we want things when we want them. But the truth is, that's not what the gift is for. You know, you're given a gift and it's meant for a specific thing. And when we really make it about us and when that gift becomes ego and that gift becomes, you know, cockiness uh, and it's all encompassing and everything else suffers because you want it when you want it and you want it for you, I believe that's when you have the greatest chance of failing. But when you want to do it because you want to share that gift with others and in hopes that that can make a difference, I believe that's when you have the greatest chance to succeed. Very interesting. And, and especially because you talk a lot about, A, your ability to think on your feet and your confidence in yourself, but at the same time, you're super collaborative and you care about others and seeing others succeed and helping them. And maybe that mixture of the two, for some reason, makes you who you are and enables you to, to blast through these obstacles that get in your way every once in a while. Well, it has worked for me so far. I mean, it's backfired a few times, but the one thing I try to explain to people I've met, I believe this as well. I believe that there are way, way more good people on this planet than there are negative people. I don't even want to say good. There are more positive people than negative because really Mm -hmm. what is good and bad? You know, I believe there's positive and negative energy. And I just believe that the negative energy is so destructive that it overshadows the positive energy. But I try to, when I talk to, you know, when I go out and I speak Mm -hmm. and I talk to, you know, kids in high school and I try to explain to them that, the worst thing you can do in life is have someone, if someone betrays you because you put yourself out there and you're open, if you allow that person to make you shut yourself down, that is the worst thing. You know, you have to look at it and go, you know what? That person didn't appreciate who I was, didn't appreciate my kindness or, or, um, or my willingness to give of myself, well, that, honestly, that's their loss. See, I look at it and go, well, that's your loss because you had someone in your corner who cared about you, who wanted to to make life better for you any way that they could, mm-hmm. and you threw it away. Yeah. You know? But you can't let it make you jaded where you change who you are. Right. And that's a part of your story. And again, people should go back and listen to, to Philly who to the episode with you, because you talk a lot about your perseverance as a kid, where you would get into a fist fight and you were getting your ass kicked in the story that you 99% tell. of the time. And, but you just very Rocky Balboa. And I know that was your nickname as well. A Kappa, they called Rocky, you rock, yeah. right? Rock. So you were a huge fan of Rocky to begin with, but just like Rocky, you'd get hit and you would just, I'm not going down. 
you're going to have to kill me if you, if you want to stop me, basically. Well, I have to tell you, life has truly hit me in the worst conceivable ways. And I, I will not lay down and die. I won't. It's not, it's not in my DNA. I, I, I just can't do it. I have to continue to fight until there's no breath left in me. It's very admirable. It really yeah, it's is. just me. Now, going back feel. to, to um, your going to the Rocky II luncheon, so you get a business card. What happens next? Oh, he really wants to go back. So a friend of mine um, said to me, he taught me a new word. <laughs> and I said, what the hell does that mean? And he's like, oh, that's you, Tony. It's you. And the word he had said to me was hyperbole. And then I realized, you know, I'm very excited and passionate about what I do. So I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. This is, you know, we can't fail. And we're going to be, it's amazing. And we're never going to lose. And, and then we got to keep going and we got to keep going. And he goes, you, you know, you just, you're so hyperbolic. And I'm like, what the hell is that? You know? And he, you know, he's right. So, you know, I sell everything I have. Mm -hmm. I had a car, I sold it. And I had you know, said to my mother and father, I'm moving to Los Angeles and I'm going to be a, a movie star and I'm not coming back. So I was cocky. Um, I was not a bad looking kid. Only problem was I knew it. Uh, I was, I was very good with speaking to women. Mm -hmm. So I got on a plane, literally, I get on a plane. I have no place to stay, nowhere to go. I have some money in my pocket. Don't know what I'm going to do when I get off the plane. Now, this is what we call super arrogant and egotistical. I believe in my head, I'll just meet a girl on the plane. <laughs> She'll dig me. I'll move in with her till I become a star. Can't make this up. So I get on a plane and it's kind of empty. I never flew before. Wow. So here I am with this suitcase that my whole life is in. I'm, I'm not even 18 years old yet. I'm still like 17. And I drop out of a perform, a cap. I don't drop out. I leave early because the truth is I made all the grades to get my diploma. Oh, okay. I just didn't stay because I did graduate from cap. Oh, awesome. And I leave before the graduation, all that stuff. So, you know, I, I get on a plane and I'm scoping the plane out and there's this beautiful brunette and she's sitting alone and I like kind of walk over and there was all these empty seats and it's the seventies. So there's no, yeah. it's security. like getting on a bus. Basically. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. You know. so I'm like, hi, she's like, hi. And I'm like, do you mind if I sit, you know, it's my first time flying and I really hate it. And do you mind? And she's like, no, I'll sit. And then we start talking and she's like, so you going to LA? I'm like, yeah. She's like, do you live there? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm an actor. She's like, oh, really? She goes, I'm an actor. I'm like, you are? She's like, yeah, I'm an actress. She's like, it's amazing. She said, you know, and we were talking hours into the flight. So about an hour before we land, she goes, so this is great. We should stay in touch. She's like, where are you staying? And I'm like, man, I really don't have any place to stay. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I just winged it. You know, I bought a plane ticket and I came out here. I guess I'll take your cash. She goes, oh, no, you stay with me. 
And in my head, I'm like, of course she's, of course. This is because exactly what you planned. Exactly what I wanted. <laughs> and again, not helping my ego any, I'm like, all right, this is great. So we get off the plane and I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. So she says to me, I have a car coming to get us. Now I'm like, oh my God, she probably lives in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. I'm staying with a millionaire. Like who could have wrote, could I have written this any better? This is incredible. And I'm thinking, beautiful girl, first time in LA. I never saw a palm tree. I remember when I get off, she was like, you all right? I'm like, wow, what is that? It's like, that's a palm tree. I'm like, that's amazing. I never saw a palm tree before. So I'm waiting for the car to come and I'm thinking, I got it made. All of a sudden, this beat up, crappy Volkswagen comes putting up and she goes, oh, and the guy gets out and she's like, oh, Tony, our ride chair. I'm like, well, that's not a limo, you know? <laughs> and she goes, Tony, this is my husband. She goes, and I'm like, oh, she's got a hot, this is not how I planned it. <laughs> and she's like, he's a fellow actor and he's struggling. Maybe he can sleep on the couch for a while. So he's like, yeah, no problem. He was a comic actually. And I'm sleeping on a couch and I'm there, you know, now I, I call Bert. I tell Bert I'm there. Now I'm thinking South Philly. So Bert says, hey, look, take your picture, your headshot, go to the casting agency, give it to them, and I know I'll help you out. Be good. I'm good. Like, but I'm South Philly Street. So I'm thinking completely different. Right. Somebody says you're good. Yeah. You're good. So I go and I have my headshot, you know, and I the woman's neck around the kind of go, I go, here you go. It's Tony Lucidonio. Is my info? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, Bert Young told me to come give you the picture. She's like, all right, okay, okay. So I go, well, and she goes, well, what? I'm like, what do you mean, well, what? What, what movie am I, where are you sending me? What movie, <laughs> what movie am I doing? And she goes, are you serious? And I'm like, well, yeah, I was told to come here. Do you understand that? She's like, yeah. I'm like, you have my picture. And I remember her literally going, do you see all those filing cabinets behind me? They all have pictures. I'm like, you're not getting it. They're, I don't know why. I was told to come here. Don't you understand? She goes, yeah, I understand. Give me the picture. So now I'm upset. I, you know, I, I get a hold of Bert. He's on the set of a film. He's like, Tony, you all right? Everything. I'm like, yeah, Bert, something's wrong with this lady at the, <laughs> you know, I go, I give her my picture. She's like, not sending me anywhere for a job. He's like, no, no, Tony, you give her the picture and I'm, I'm with you. Like, I'm going to help you. We're, I'm like, well, that's not any help, Bert. You know, and I, and I walked in and gave the picture myself. And he's like, no, Tony, don't work that way. Just take, anyway, about a week goes by and the woman's husband that I'm staying says, hey, you want to get some breakfast? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, how you doing, Tom? I'm like, good, good. He's like, um, how's the apartment hunting coming? And I'm like, <laughs> hint, hint. Yeah, I'm like, uh, well, I really didn't have, you know, have a chance to look yet. He goes, uh, I like you, Tony. I do. Like, I think he goes, you know that um, we're married, right? And I'm like, yeah. I don't know. And you know, you've been here like over a week now, almost two weeks. Yeah, I appreciate it. He goes, yeah, I know. He said, but, you know, married couples like to be with each other. And I can't do it. So now I go, 
Hey, look, you want me to like get room for a night or two somewhere? And he goes, no, I want you to move out. And I moved into this hotel room and I wind up getting into a fight with James Kahn. And it was just, if we get into that story, we'll be here an hour. And, you know, I kind of was very politely told might be a good idea to leave California while you still have legs. Now, why was, was it Jimmy Kahn that told you you had to get out of LA or did somebody tell you? Somebody no, else it was, it, it was, it would have been bad. You Got know, it. like it would have been, it would have been a bad thing. I, you know, cause being from South Philly, I was very mouthy mm-hmm. and, you know, I was getting mouthy with the wrong people in Los Angeles and like Jimmy Kahn. Well, Jimmy Kahn was, you know, he wasn't a joke. People look at him as an actor, but trust me. Yeah. He was connected, right? He was no joke. And right. I, and then I'm thinking, well, I'm no joke either, dude. Like <laughs> I have family in South Philly. I know people, you know, it was the seventies. It was like, and, uh, I left. And as soon as I came back, I got married. Like literally yeah. like a week later, I ran off to Elkton, Maryland. Cause we were, she was too young. She was 17 and I had just turned 18 and we got married. And then you start having kids and, and me, you're Tony just was born a working yeah. stiff after that for a little while, for a little while. But, but then, you know, music was my thing. Right. So then walk us through that. So then yeah. roughly 1984, you meet Max Weissman, right? Oh, Max. So I want to put a band together. And again, I don't realize that I can't. No limits. No limits. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking, trying to find someone. And I'm walking, I think it was Chestnut Street, I don't remember. And I hear this sax player like just playing and he's crushing it. And I look and it was the New Power Conservatory of Music. And I, now remember, I have a, I have a cut sleeve t-shirt with jeans with a vest on a leather vest with a, an earring that literally comes down to my shoulder. And I just look like I'm going to hurt someone. (laughs) And I walk in, just walk in trying to find where the plane's coming from. And there he is, Max. And he's playing and he goes, can I help you? I'm like, you're good. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I'm Tony Lucidonio. I'm putting a band together. You're playing sax. <laughs> and he's like, excuse me. I'm like, I'm putting a band together. I'm a songwriter. I'm a singer. I'm going to put a band together. It's going to be great. You want in? Yes. You want in? You want in? And he's like, oh, all right. All right. And that's basically how I got every member of the band. And we, you know, we rehearsed and I didn't think we couldn't do it. And my problem was I always thought until very recently I was always got to the tip of making it and then something literally out of my control always happened and I lost it. Do you think there's a pattern in that? There was a pattern, but I remember being a little resentful to God at the time. And I remember, you know, I would pray and I would say to him, why would you give me a gift and then never allow me to use it? Like what... I don't get it. And every time I'd come back, something would happen and then something would happen to shut it down. And then I remember just quitting. And I said, I'm not going to do music. I'm just not going to do it because it ain't about the music anymore. Because basically, honestly, for me, I love music, but it was about me. Right. It's like, yeah, you know, I want to be a rock star. Like I want to be, you know, and it, it was very selfish and it was all about me making it in music, not the music. 
the music I took for granted because I could hear it and I, and I was good at writing it. And I just thought, yeah, well, not, it just, it, it's a gift. Right. But I need to make tons of money with it. And everything was very selfish based. Yeah. Cause you meet Max, you got, you end up going back to LA for a second stint. Yeah. I go now, to now for, Records. Yeah. To and then I go to AM Records career. and we cut an album and I'm thinking I made it. This is it. I did it. I made it. So the album's finished. I'm very excited about it. Now I'll tell you how committed I was though. True story about my music. How committed. Your one regret. My, 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 you know, commitment to music. So we're in Studio B at A&M Records, and Michael Jackson is in Studio A recording. So they come in my studio, and I'm, you know, we're getting ready, and I'm laying tracks down, and we're mixing, and I'm doing, and they go, hey, guys, you want to stop? You know, you want to come in and meet Michael? And just, and I'm like, no, dude, I'm doing my music. I don't have time to meet Michael. I don't have time. And I didn't. And I, you know, I always regretted that. And I, I'm not, I don't have time. I'm like, I'm doing my, I was so focused. laser. Folks with the music. And then we finished. And this may sound ex- completely absurd to anyone in 2020, but it was not absurd then. And I remember walking into the, um, the office. Jonathan McLean was the head of A&R at the time. And sitting in the room was John McLean, Herb Albert, Jerry Moss, who is the M in A&M, and Chuck Mangione. And they said to me, Tony, the album is great. Like, it's really, really good. And I was like, oh, you know, thank you. He said, but we're not going to, not going to release it. And I was like, well, why? He said the album is great. He said, look, we'll give you the masters back so you can, do what you want, because they paid for them. We're not going to hold the masters. And and I said, why? And he said, well, I don't want to lie to you. I'm going to tell you the truth. He said, but I'm going to tell you right now, you say it, I'll deny it. He's like, but you look like somebody I can tell the truth to. And I really didn't say anything for now, but it's you know so many years. Jesus, what is it, almost 30-something years. He said to me, we worked with the marketing department for the last two weeks. We don't have a clue how to market you. You, I can't market you as a white artist because you do R&B music. He said, and I can't market you as an R&B artist because you're white. And I remember him saying, there's a duet on the album with a black woman. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, how do I market that? Like, I can't, I don't know how to market that, Tony. And then it clicked later, which is really funny because Michael McDonald and Patti LaBelle did a song together. But now you Google this and you see what I'm saying. They did a video. Now that's Michael McDonald and Patti LaBelle. They are never together in the video. Ever. He's in one city singing to her. She's in another city singing to him. They're never together. So I got very discouraged. Um, really, I, I, I realized it wasn't about the music. It was about politics. It was about image. It was about, you know, all of the things that didn't involve music. And I remember leaving 
and I was crushed. And um, Greg Peck from Island Records called me, and he said, I'd like to see you. I'd like to try to get you on Island. And we went to the studio. I remember we went to K-Gems, and then there was, you know, Studio 4 was a little later. Um, it was K-Gems, and um, we cut more tracks, the band. And then in the end, it came down between me and... Uh, a gentleman named Miles J, and they gave it to Miles. And then I thought, well, there's a flashback again. I'm like, is it, you know, because I'm Italian? Is that why, you know, and the Island Records only give me, you know. And he's like, look, he said, Tony, I believe in you. I do believe in you. He said, I, I, I love the, the music that you write. You know, I love your voice. He said, and no, no one pushed harder for you, you know, than I did. He said, but let me tell you something. If you want me to feel sorry for you because maybe you didn't get the gig because of the color of your skin, and I'm not saying that's true. He said, I will shed no tears for you, my friend. He said, because if you want me to, you want me to start reeling off every artist who, you know, every white artist took their music and they never got paid a penny. He said, so he said, as someone who really respects and loves your music, I wish you would have gotten a deal. But he said, as, as a black man, if you want me to feel sorry, because maybe, maybe, maybe there was a little bit of, well, you know, maybe don't give it to the Italian kid if there's a choice to give it to someone else. He said that, my friend, I'll never feel sorry for. He said, because it doesn't feel good, does it? He said, now, I honestly don't think I think everyone should just be be given what they he said, but the world doesn't work that way, Tony. He said, and I was young, you know, and I was angry. And I'm like, well, then music doesn't mean anything, you know. And I just, I was clueless to, you know, to the world itself. And I quit. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm still friends with Greg. He's a wonderful human being. And um, he wanted me to continue to write. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe it's the writing. And he had suggested that maybe I write some of the songs for Miles J, who was, sounded just like Teddy Pendergrass back then. And Miles um, mm, uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't too thrilled with the idea because, you know, he was a writer. And it's like, well, I don't need this kid to come and write music for me. I mean, he was a musician. So... You don't want someone else to come in and write if you're right. writing your own material. And then I got really discouraged with it, and I kind of dropped off the face of the earth when it came to music. So I, I really stopped for all the, you know, all the wrong reasons. But, you know, here's what I say, and I really believe this with every fiber of my being. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. So it's just another example of, and again, it's, it's how do you deal with things in life? I could have turned around and been bitter. And being like, you know, this is bull and I'm not going to do it. But I didn't, you know. I, it was an opportunity for me to understand the world better. It was an opportunity for me to be a better version of me. And I did. I tried. And I've still made a, a boatload of mistakes. And then, you know, I had this Italian restaurant that I opened and I never worked it. And it failed. You know, I was lazy. I didn't want to do it. I liked food. But I didn't really want to work. I just wanted to make money, you know. And 
you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't candy coat anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I was arrogant and lazy and egotistical and self-centered. And, um, I had kids and I, 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 I didn't, definitely do not think I was a good father. I wasn't, I was too wrapped up in my own self selfishness. And, um, I thought I was doing the right thing. You know, I was raised that, you know, a man goes out, he makes money. That's what a, what a man does. He makes money and you know, you do what you have to do. You make money and you don't worry about the kids. You let your wife raise the kids, you know, that antiquated, you know, whole idea. And that's what I thought. I'm like, man, I'm not doing anything wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm doing what a man's supposed to do. Go out there and make money. My wife's supposed to raise the kids and, which is a horrific regret that I have to this day. I never saw my children take their first steps. I never went to a baseball game. I never, cause I was too busy, you know, trying to make money because that's what a man does. And, and I, 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 you know, I say I regret it, but it's kind of, it's, it's kind of two phased in one hand. I say I regret it, but on the other hand, I do realize that regret is a completely wasted emotion. I can't do anything to change it. So sitting here regretting it does nothing but make me sad and accomplishes absolutely nothing. But I would be lying to you if I didn't say there's plenty of times that I think back on those days and I regret that I didn't, you know, I didn't do that. And, um, and then Tony Luke's, you know, my father had come to me and he said, look, I, you know, I really want to do something with the family. And, I found this property on Oregon Avenue and um, let's build, you know, we'll make sandwiches. And he was already in the lunch truck business and he used to make roast beef and roast pork for families and they loved it. And I said, all right, let, you know, let's do it. And then we literally, literally built it from the ground up. And my father didn't, you know, 95% of the building. I just got in the way, me and my brother kind of got in the way because I have no skills other than cooking and music. I mean, other than, you know, films, but when it, you know, I can't take a light bulb out without looking at directions. I mechanically inclined. No, not never, but you know what? I was good at cement work and I'm just starting to think that, you know what? If you're Italian, (laughs) the DNA just had, you just born, you're born knowing how to do cement work. If you're Italian, I believe that. Like I took to it like a fish to water. I'm like, right. oh, I could do this. Yeah, this is good. You know, this is some kind of DNA shit going on, <laughs> and uh, and um, you know, and then my father, he worked so hard that it was a summer day, and um, we he was nonstop working, and he would he put everything he had into it, and Right, because you guys just quick sidebar. He you sold guys the would basically, yeah, he sold his business. And then it would work, and, and it was there. essentially you were bootstrapping, which is the modern hashtag now. But you guys were doing it back then. You're basically using all the money you had to put into building Correct. what is now Tony Luke's. Correct. And then it would have to stop when the cash ran out, Correct. and your dad would just go make work another money, job, yeah, make some more money, and come and back. And he would, you know, and and then. I heard him faintly call my name and he was on the floor behind the building and I had rushed him to the hospital and his blood pressure was so high that he was, you know, 
moments away from a stroke. And then every, everything held up until he got back, and then we did it. And I remember we had finished, and it was the night before we were going to open. And I, you know, I looked at him, I was like, yeah, we did this. And there was like, I don't know, like $1,500 left in the, in the, the register or bank. And I remember he said to me, he said, um, how old was he? He was, he was born in 1939. We opened up in 92. So he was 50, 51. Was it 51? I'm horrible with numbers. Truly. Yeah, 53. 53. 53. And I was uh, 30. Right. And I remember him saying to me, this has to work. I'm 50, you know, 53 years old and I'm tired. And I don't know if I have another one in me. This has to work. And we never looked back. And, you know, he worked incredibly hard. Like, I remember my whole life, all he did was was work. And he just worked and worked and worked and worked. And I was never a big fan of, you know, physical labor. I liked music. I liked the arts. I liked, so we kind of always clashed because I, I don't think I was really, you know, I guess he wanted the construction worker son, and I was the musician and the singer, right? you know, and the artist. And my brother was very much like my dad, so they always got along. And I, you know, I was a, you know, I was a bad kid. Like, I, you know, I never took any any crap. I, I was a very fat kid when I was younger, and I got picked up, picked on all the time. And... But here's what's amazing. Again, the way you look at a situation. So relentlessly teased because how heavy I was. And then I thought, okay, how do I get them to stop laughing at me and laugh with me? So I kind of became the class clown. But then because I was so heavy, women didn't really find me attractive. So I had to learn how to speak to women and get them to see the inside me, not the outside me. And believe it or not, later on in life, it really helped my communication skills with people because I was forced to learn how to speak to someone to get them to understand and look beyond my physical appearance. And I did. And you know, I'm not, you know, I'm completely against bullying, but I look back at that time and I think, I don't think I would, would be the the communicator that I became if it hadn't been for the fact that I was almost forced to learn to communicate, to talk my way out of getting, getting picked on or talk my way out of getting bullied. And then one day, um, I was at a friend's house complaining about being heavy. And he said, do you ever do meth? And I was like, no, I'm not doing, I'm not shooting a needle. I'm not, you know, He's like, no, you don't got to shoot it up, man. He's like, you can just snort it. I'm like, I'm not snorting. He goes, look, see if you like it first. And I'll never forget. He opened up a bottle of seven up. Well, there was no twist. He opened up a bottle and he poured a little bit of crank in the, in the cap and he poured a little bit of seven up in it and he said, just drink it. 
And I was like, he's going to help me lose weight. He's like, yeah, to help you lose weight. And then I drank it and we stayed around for a little bit. Then I start walking back, you know, through the neighborhood and it hit me. And it was like, oh my God, oh my God, where did this energy come from? Oh my, you know, and I'm, they're like, you hungry? I'm like, no, not hungry. You know? And I literally got hooked on doing it and I had melted away because I never ate, I never slept, I never ate. I mean, never realizing that it was destroying my my whole sinus. That's why I have trouble today even singing because I burnt out my entire sinus cavities. You wear your teeth down and it's bad. It's, it's a bad drug. And But I had originally did it to lose the weight and, you know, it grabbed me. Now, I, you notice I didn't say that I became an addict because I wasn't an addict. Um, there's a difference between someone with a drug problem and someone who suffers from addiction. Uh, I was getting high. Those who suffer from addiction self-medicate. There is a huge difference, huge, huge. So when I almost overdosed, um, I stopped because I wasn't medicating an issue. I wasn't medicating a mental health issue. I wasn't medicating a trauma, a physical or emotional trauma or a sexual trauma. I just liked it. So when it started to affect my life where I could die, I just stopped. And then when my son was struggling with addiction, I couldn't understand why he couldn't just stop because I, 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 didn't, I didn't understand addiction. I know I'm all over the place. No, that's no, that's happened. okay. And that's part of the message that you try to deliver today is that there's a huge stigma associated with people who have essentially what equates to a mental disability. Well, it's trauma and mental health. Like, yeah. They love to give it a name. And this is my argument. They go, well, it's addiction and it's a substance um, use probably like whatever, you know, and I'm like, it, it doesn't need a name. It has a name. It's bipolar it's schizophrenia, it's manic depressiveness, it's physical trauma, it's mental trauma and emotional trauma. It's You don't have to give it another name. Right. It has a ton of names already. So let's treat the cause of the self-medicating. You know, they think that, okay, well, you go to rehab and then you abstain and then you just need to make better choices. And I think that that is such a horrific thing to do to people that are suffering because you literally set them up to fail every single time. You don't tell somebody who's got cancer and you go, Hey, look, you got a tumor. It's cancer. Take some aspirins and try not to eat food that causes cancer. You know, it's just the most ridiculous thing in the world. But what I love is people are getting it now. You know, recovery centers are adding the mental health component you know, I, I made this statement and it is a true statement and I will stick by it no matter who believes in it or don't believe in it. Heroin took my son's life, but it is the stigma that killed him. That was the thing that it took all his hope away. Right. He felt like he was worthless. He felt like everyone would be better off if he died. And he was so incredibly wrong. And the world just looked at him with disdain and they thought he was weak. And they thought he was someone that should just they could get rid of. 
like the society doesn't need him. And, you know, I, when I go and I speak, I just try to make people understand that, learn about addiction, learn, you know, and, and here's the other thing too. You know, I hear people, you know, really come down heavy on, on millennials and, and look, Hey, there's always some truth in everything. But the truth is when I was a kid, there was no internet. There was no Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Google. When I was a kid and someone bullied me, I got bullied by, you know, 10 kids in class. Right. You know, now these kids are, you know, they're being bullied by a thousand kids online and who's retweeting and, right. and, and, you know, and who's sharing and, you know, who's doing this. And the other thing too is I didn't know what was going on in China or Russia or Ireland. I knew what was going on in South Philly. Nobody knew these kids are growing up in an age where information is immediately accessible to them. So they're dealing with, oh my God, there's people being killed here. Oh my God. I didn't have mass shootings when I was a kid right. in high schools. So I get it. Like people of my generation are like, well, they need to toughen up, just toughen up. And, and I look, I, you know, I get that trend of thinking. I get it. But what I try to explain to people that are my age or older is I understand what you're saying, but I don't think you understand the massive amount of energy. I mean, uh, information that these kids are getting bombarded with every single day, way more than what you had to deal with or I had to deal with. So do I think that people do need to look at life and be, you know, say, Hey, look, I got to try to get through this. I want to get through it. I, you know, I don't want to see people run away in a corner and give up. Right. I, I believe that people should fight through, try to fight through, but on the same token, when we're talking mental illness, a mental illness, autism, these are things that people need real help with. These are not things that you go, Hey, toughen up, learn it, get better. And then you get out the door and do it. That doesn't work. It's, it's different. And you have to understand that it is different. And again, it goes back to what I said. It goes back to growth. If I still thought the way I thought when I was 30 at, you know, 58, you know, what, what, what did I learn? Like, what was my, right. what was my existence even for? And I, you know, I think that people need to be, you know, a little understanding on what, the kids today have to deal with. Now, again, now, again, this is not popular, I want to say, but the truth is there are some things where people need to be like, hey, you can't do that. Well, I went, well, you can't do it. Well, that's not my feeling. Well, I don't need to know your feeling. You're eight. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what you feel. You're eight years old. You don't really know what you feel. Well, he doesn't want to do this and he doesn't want to do that because he doesn't feel like doing that today. He's got to go to school. Get up, get dressed, put shoes on, go to school. I don't care. You don't feel you're having it. Like, you know what I mean? In, in certain instances, it's like, you know, you have to go to school, go to school. You know, so in that aspect, I do believe that. But now that doesn't apply to someone who's having right. mental issues or is on the spectrum who who definitely needs care and needs understanding and needs patience. I'm not saying that, but there's a lot of kids that I look at and I'm looking, I'm like, yeah, you, I don't say it, but in my mind, I'm like, your kid's running around kicking everything. Like he's kicking everything. <laughs> You're sitting there and you didn't once say, don't kick. 
Or I hear someone go, oh, well, that's what he wants to do. And we shouldn't, we should let them feel their feelings. No, he's kicking shit. Tell him to stop. <laughs> well said. I, I agree. I agree completely. And I won't kick anything in here. I promise. No, um, <laughs> so, but first of all, thank you so much for, for sharing that message and, and for sharing your, your very personal and, um, and, and a tough experience for you. Um, so today you, you reiterate that message, you go out and you speak to try to reduce this stigma around mental health issues and addiction. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'll, I will not mention any names. Sure. Because it's not right to mention any names. Uh, but I remember the name. And I'll never forget it. Um, I had an issue with my father and my brother. Mm-hmm. Got really bad. And um, it kind of brought me to the brink of bankruptcy. And um, it was ugly and... I just want to say right off the bat, I love my father, my brother. I always have, and I always will. And I, I, with every fiber of my being, I, I wish that, you know, we, we could, you know, come together. Um, but at the time, you know, Tony was out of a job and I wasn't able to help him and he had no health insurance and I was unable to help him because I had no insurance and, Things were really bad for me. I mean, really, really bad. Like the lowest it had ever been financially. And um, I said to him, Tony, you know, go out. I'll help you. Like apply for a job and um, you'll see. You'll, you'll get a job. You're, I'm not really good. I'm like, Tony, you're, you're really good at designing kitchens. And you've been in the food business with me forever. It's like, you just have to have faith that you can do it. And I said, I know you can't apply. No, dad, I can't. We're struggling with addiction prior. So he had come back from rehab and he truly was probably 18 months in recovery. Notice I never used the term 18 months clean because clean donates. He was dirty and he wasn't dirty. He was ill and he was, he was in recovery for about 18 months. and. He was really trying, like he really trying. Pulls on an application, he gets an interview for a place in Philadelphia, um, a restaurant that has is opening up branches. And he's like, they they you know they offer me a job, and I'm, I'm going to go for training. Now remember, here's a kid with you know very low self esteem, who the world looked at for a very long time as a piece of shit that just should die, and. Um, so he's overexcited. So he goes and he's training and then he would literally come over and go, dad, dad, dad. You know, it's a 35 year old man. Dad, dad, look at this. Look, read that email, read that email. And it was just like, you know, Anthony, you exemplary today and you know, your worth at your work ethic. And I said, Tony, I, I told, and then, you know, a week later, another, and it'd be like, and then he, he comes over to me about a month into the training. And he said, dad, look at this email. And it said, Anthony, we would like to start you running our new location because you're a perfect fit. And, you know, every, and, and he, he, for the first time in a very long time, there was life in his eyes again that was there. 
And, um, and then he said, I remember the week went by and he's like, first day. I said, look, call me. Let me know how your first day went. I'm so proud of you, Tony. I told you. Because he said, my past will never leave me, Dad. And I said, no, it will, Tony. It will. You make, you make new inroads and you, you live your life and it'll, it'll, it'll find a place in the past. And, you know, you, you move forward, believe in you and I believe in you. And, and, um, and then the first day at work, about an hour in, he called me up crying. And I said, oh, my God, Tony, what happened? First thing I thought, something. And he goes, I, I got fired. I'm like, what do you mean you got fired? He's like, Dad, I, I came in, and there was the guy there, and, and he said to me that he didn't think that I was up to the job and that it was a mistake. And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean mistake? I read, you know, I read the email. I have the email. He goes, I know. I, I, I told him. I said, did you look at the email? Did you look at my report? And then he goes, yeah, I, we just don't think you're a good fit for the company. And he was destroyed. And I went online and I Googled his real name, which they never did. And about six months prior, no, no, I'm, no, 18. He was in recovery for about 18 months. So almost two years prior, he had walked into a Walmart put on a Walmart vest, took a TV and he walked it out and he got caught. And in Jersey, if you're an addict or you commit a crime, they place your picture and your name and said, you know, he was dealing with drug issues and he, you know, went to rob a TV. And I guess they couldn't say, Hey, we Googled you and you're fine. You know, because there was no, I mean, I'm not saying it because he's my son. Literally, I was the hardest on him of all. I read every single email. And it wasn't like that traditionally. Center. I mean, it was very personal to him. And he died again. His eyes died. And I, I had, I, I didn't know what to say to him. Like, I, I just, I saw him just completely, all the life come out of him. And he said to me, I told you, Dad, it'll never leave me. My past will never leave me. And I said, no, we're going to get you another job. And Gino Vento, who owns Gino Steaks, who is like a brother to me, um, he said, Tony, I'll, I'll take him. Only problem is the only spot I have open is night. I'm like, well, anything you can give him, Gino. And Gino took him in because my son had two daughters and, and, and a wife. And um, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was still up, and he was working night shift. And I just wanted to go and say hi to him. And I, I drove. Gino's like, there's a point there. And he was... Um, he was taking, I guess, a cigarette break, and he didn't see me, and I I looked at his face, and he had died already, and I remember saying in the car, Father, please help him because I can't. And uh, an opportunity came up to take over one of the franchises. 
And we were fighting to get the company back after the lawsuit. Horrible. And um, and I, you know, I talked to my partner. Could we get this? And I, it's a chance for Tony. And and he came, and we, you know, we cleaned the place up, and we worked, and we had this big opening, and gave out like a thousand cheesesteak. And he worked that grill. He really was amazing on the grill. And it was a Sunday night, and he said to me, "Hey, Dad." He's like, I fucked up a lot. I go, well, Tony, you know, tomorrow's always another day. And he said, I, ha I have to make it up to my girls. And my wife, like, I have to, I have to, I have to make it up to them. I'm going to make it up to them. I want to make it up to them. And I said, no, Tony, we're going to do this. And he goes, you really think I'm going to be okay? That like, do you really think I'm going to be okay? And I'm like, Tony, because at this point I had really understood addiction and I got it. And I said, I'm with you, Tony. Tony, I'm with you. And he was um, mopping the floor. And he was on medication for depression, but he had no health insurance, so he couldn't get the medication. And I remember that night I said to him, Tony, you already goes my back. I'm a, I said, Tony, here's the deal. I don't care if I got to steal something. I am going to find the money to get you health insurance. I'm, I'm going to find the money. I'm, I'm going to do it. Because you, you have to get your medication. Like, I can't. And he's like, thanks, Dad. I, and I, I'll do I don't care. I won't eat. Literally, at that point, I'm like, whatever you want to do. Because when my father fired everyone from that store, he cut everyone's benefits. So he had nothing. And um, so I said, why don't you go home? I'll finish. And I hugged him and I kissed him. And then it was Monday. And it was about 8.30 in the morning, and I thought, I want to call him and just tell him, you know, how proud I am of him going, getting through everything that he did. Like, just so proud. And I knew he was in tremendous amount of pain because he literally couldn't even walk out the door. He literally could not walk out the door. His back was so horrific. And I remember saying to him, Tony, remember, just take a bunch of Motrin. You'll be okay. Take Motrin and get some rest. And we don't open again until Tuesday, so you have a day off. And um, I said, you know what? I'm not going to call him because he worked so late last night and his back was killed. Let him sleep. And then the day got past me, obviously, and I had to do signings for Citizens Bank Park for the Tony Luke's opening up for the baseball season. And it was like down in the basement. And I took an Uber over. It's weird. Would you remember? And. I was giving out sandwiches and taking pictures with people. And Alex Holly from Fox 29 was just, I guess, just, you know, starting. And, and she came over to say hi. And I introduced myself and, you know, gave her a cheesesteak. And I, I was like, look, we got to get more. We got to bring him out. And my phone rang. And I saw it was my son, Michael. And I'm thinking, let me get this. And I picked up the phone. And I heard him go, da, 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 da. I'm like, Michael, what's it? Oh, like, he's crying. I'm like, what's the matter? And he's like, all I hear is it's breaking up. And I hear dead, dead is what I hear. So now I panic because I have no signal. And I run up the steps to go to the outside. And my phone drops and hits every step on the way down. Now I'm in panic mode because did my phone just break? And I remember grabbing the phone. And I ran upstairs like in a movie and I, 
burst the doors open from whatever end I was or side of Citizens Bank Park. I said, Michael, he goes, Dad. And I'm like, Michael, what is it? What's the matter? And he said, Stacy called Tony's dead. And it was my worst fear. Come to life. And uh, I remember falling. And I remember it wasn't even a scream. It was something from like deep inside your stomach. And I remember I had to get home and I was calling everyone. I was calling my girl. No one was answering the phone. Like, no one was answering the phone. And I'm like, somebody has to call me back. Somebody has to, I, I have to get home. I have to get. I have to see my son. I have to get. And I'm like, now I don't know where I am. I'm out some door and I just hit Uber. I, I just hit come and get me, not knowing where it is. And my girl finally calls me and I tell her what happened. She freaks out. I'm coming to your place. And then I remember this. It was a minivan. And I got into the back of the minivan and I crawled onto the floor and I just kept saying, God, no, please, God, no, please, God, no, no, please, God, please, God, no, please. And then what I remember most is we got back here and I remember him picking me up off the floor and hugging me, just literally just hugging me. And then my girl was there, and I I said, we have to go to my son's house. And it was surreal. And I, I got to the house, and there were cops everywhere. And they wouldn't let me inside the house because he had, he had died in the bathroom. And um, my partner came, and my friend John came, and you know, people were coming. And I just, I didn't know, like, you're just in the fog. And and then my ex-wife pulled up with my son, Mike, with my son, Joey. And I remember she got out and she said, where's my son? And I said, you, you, he's now, all right, I got to go in. I'm like, no, you can't go in. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm his mother. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake him up. I'll wake him up. And I'm like, you can't wake him up. He's gone. And she just fainted. And um, she was freaking out. And I remember telling my partner, I, I said, I can't watch him come out of the house. I can't see him in a bag. I said, so I'll turn away. I don't want to look at the ambulance. Take him away. So... I turned, and they came out, and they put him in the ambulance, and they were driving away, and my girl said, don't look, don't look. And then as I turned to look, it was the back of the ambulance. And I knew that, you know. And then I I, I, I came home, and because um, you, you can't sleep, and... You, you just want to die. And I remember going through the lawsuit and just all the problems I had with my dad because I, I, I worshiped the ground that he walked on and it was very difficult for me. And I remember looking at my girlfriend, Marie, and she was on a couch and I said, Marie, I'm strong, but God is beating me down like life is beating me, not God. 
life is it's punching me nonstop. The lawsuit. I have no money. I'm uh, like, and I and I said to her, and I tell her this, and she gets upset. She goes, "I'm sorry, I said it." I'm like, "You didn't know you were like Maria. You, you had no idea." And I said, "I'm strong, but my knees are buckling. I don't know how much more I can take." And she said, "God's preparing you for something." bad and then Tony died and it felt like someone took a baseball bat and then just beat the living piss out of me with a bat and I remember I remember going to the funeral home hearing the words that I you know can you come with me now and pick out a coffin and I remember Maria was with me and my ex-wife was there. And I remember saying, what coffin do you think he would like? Like, I don't know what he would like. And um, we did that, and I was trying to keep it together. But the hardest thing I ever had to do, ever, and it's the hardest thing I know I, I ever will have to do, was when his the funeral, the way he came, and the funeral came, and, and the funeral director said, okay, we need pallbearers. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to you know, carry. And he's like, oh, no, 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 parent. Parent can't carry a child to the grave. He can't, he can't do that. And I remember saying, I'm carrying my son. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do because the truth is when your child dies, you die. It took a couple of weeks before I can go back to the store and um, an elderly gentleman came in, and he said, Tony, I'm really sorry about your son. And I said, thank you. He said, do you mind if I asked how he died? And I said, he died from a, a heroin overdose. And he got very angry, and he was like, see what these kids do, and they break our hearts. And I remember not being angry at him, but for the first time, I saw through the eyes of my son, the way people looked at him and how they felt about him. And I thought, um, I thought that's what God wants me to do. Heroin took his life, but the stigma killed him. That's what I need to do. And I remember just telling my story and then I was bad. I was spiraling, really spiraling. And then a friend of mine brought over a keyboard, and he said, why don't you, you play again? And I'm like, I don't want to play music. I don't want to breathe. I don't want to eat. I don't want to look at anyone. I just want to die now. And he said, well, music was always there for you. You should try. I'll just leave it. And he left it. Oh, and I, let me, anyone who's listening, let me just educate you on this, okay? If someone you know loses a child, tell them that you are sorry for their loss and then shut up because there's nothing that you can say 
that will even remotely make them feel better. Do not say to them that, well, we have to be strong. Don't say to them, God does everything for a reason. Don't say to them, oh, they're in a better place now. Don't say to them, in time, things will get better. Tell them that you are sorry for their loss. Tell them that if there's anything that you can do to help them, you will, and shut your mouth. I came in the room one day and I just started banging the keys. And I had realized that in all the years that I was doing music and writing music, I never knew what the hell I was doing. Like I would just play the keys that sounded good. And then I would get a keyboard player to come in and go, here's the song. And I would literally write a song like I'd go, Dan, she wants to be with me. Dan, and you know that's just Dan, cause I love her so. Dan, like that, literally, that's how I wrote every song I had ever written. And then the keyboard player would come in and be like, like, this is okay. It's in the key of C. I don't know what that key is. All right, good. It's in the keys. So when I came back, um, I sat in the room and I said, you need to learn how to play. And I, I, I'm plugging someone, but I'm just telling the truth. Uh, so I joined something called um, Playground Sessions, which is an amazing tool to learn how to play piano. And I literally locked myself in this room because I just wanted to die. So this was the only thing keeping me from walking off the balcony. And I started to learn what, you know, chords were and chord progressions and what minor chords were and what suspended chords were and diminished chords and augmented chords, you know, and I started to learn what the scales were and the fingering that you need to, and I just, I engrossed myself in it. And I want, you know, I would get up in the morning at like 6am because I can't, couldn't sleep sometimes four in the morning and I'd play and I'd play and then I'd fall asleep at the keyboard at three o'clock. And then I did this month after month, after month, after month, after month, after month. And then, um, I said, I want to do something with the music and Bob Dylan's song, make you feel my love was something I'd wanted to say to my son that I never said to him while he was alive. And I had this idea of a video and I called a friend of mine, Bob Sweeney, and I said, hey, do you want to come and film this video? I have this idea of a father in a warehouse with a piano, and he's singing to his son a picture of his son to tell him how he feels. But instead of concentrating on me singing, I want to bring real people in that have lost their children or a spouse or a father or a mother or someone to addiction. And I also want people that have been in recovery and they're, they're in the fight, they're in the battle. And I want people to know that these are real people. They're human beings. They're not numbers. They're not statistics. And I went and I cut it. And the funny thing is I had only been playing piano for like, you know, two months. <laughs> so, you know, I kept telling them, don't cut to my hands because I'm probably going to make a thousand mistakes <laughs> on the, you know, on the keyboard. You know, I'm, I'm actually playing the bass you know, with my left hand, with like my thumb and one, like it was completely ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, the song was actually recorded, like the instruments were played by a really good friend of mine, Dan Morrow, is a brilliant musician and he actually produced the track and 
And then I laid the vocals down. And then we did this video and it just got an incredible amount of attention because these are real people. And then Dana came and did it behind the scenes. So if you go on YouTube and you type in Make You Feel My Love, Tony Luke Jr., you'll see the, it'll say official video. And then you'll see something that says behind the scenes interview for the making of. It's like six minutes long or it's really something you should watch. Her company did an amazing job and her name is on there. So you can see who it is. Dabadoff or Donda, something like that. And I realized that it struck a real chord. A woman said to me, I don't know what it feels like. I couldn't even imagine what it feels like to lose a child. And I was laying in bed and I said, what does it feel like? And I came in to the studio. I started to play and I wrote a song called Broken. And in the song, I try to tell you what it feels like for me to have lost a child. I've never recorded it because it's very sad. And, you know, I don't want people to be more sad. And, uh, but I wrote it. And I realized that music was, was the key. I mean, the universe is made up of vibrations and harmonics, and that's music is vibrations. And I called an old friend of mine, Joe Niccolo, uh, Joe the Butcher Niccolo, who used to own Rough House Records, who is a nine-time Grammy winner, probably one of the most incredible producers who was responsible for so many incredible acts. And I got to touch him on Facebook because I lost his number 30 years ago. And I said, hey, it's Tony Luke. Um, you know, I've been writing some music that I think could help people, you know, and um, would you, you know, take a listen? Maybe there's something, you know, we can do. And he got back to me. And he was like, um, I'll, what's your cell? Like, in, as I sent him my cell number. And I'll never forget, I, I break him for him till today. So he goes, uh, Tony, he goes, so you're writing, you're writing songs and you're, I'm like, he says, listen, you know, I'm, I'm old school and I'm direct. You see what I mean? He goes, well, you know, a lot of people say that they're songwriters, but the truth is they're not. So I don't want to lay you down. If you want to send me a song, <laughs> I'll be happy to listen to it, but know that, you know, if it sucks, I'm going to tell you it sucks and. Maybe songwriting is not your thing. So I'm thinking in my head, well, that's strange to say that because I worked with music with him for 30 years ago, like always. Okay. Maybe he hated my shit back then. I don't know. So I sent him this stuff and he calls me back. He's like, this is really good. Like, I want to work, I want to work with you. I'm like, okay. Go in the studio. And we started working on material. I wrote a song called Walk Away with Joe Kalari, a friend of mine. And I literally walk in the second day to the studio and he goes, you're Tony Lucidonio. <laughs> and I go, yeah, I know. He goes, I don't know why it didn't click. Tony Luke, I'm thinking Tony Luke. We know each other. I'm like, yeah, Joe, I was waiting for when your brain would catch up <laughs> to the fact that you knew me for 30 freaking years. And that we worked on music. Yeah. Yeah, I never put Tony Luke and Tony Lucidonio together. It was really funny. And he said to me, I got an idea. Love to work with you on something. I'm like, what is it? He says, let's do something with music to really make a difference. 
I said, I'm down. What do you want to do? And he said, let's get all my connections and your connections and let's create this, which I'm wearing today, which is the, excuse me, the Sound Mind Network. Mm -hmm. So we created that, me, Joe Niccolo, and Joseph DiGiacomo, who's our finance guy. Mm -hmm. And Joe started calling people. And I want to give a huge major shout out to two amazing people. The The Bacon Brothers were absolutely incredible. And Michael and Kevin Bacon said, we're in. How can we help? Wow. We're in. They came to the studio. They recorded one track. Now they called up. They want to do another track for the album. Uh, Cindy Lauper's People's Been Unbelievable. We have a remix that we did from Billy Joel. And then all of a sudden, all of these artists start coming on board going, okay, how can we help? What do we do? We know we need to, you know, get this in people's faces. So right now we're putting together, we're going to every, you know, artist that we know and um, we're, we're going in Joe's studio. We're either cutting a new song of, if they want to do that, or if we want to do a remix of an old song that they have. And then all of the proceeds, and I mean all of the proceeds, other than whatever the expenses are, you know, the artist's expense is, uh, goes towards the Sound My Network. And what the Sound My Network is, is we are an artistic-based foundation that helps educate people about mental health and addiction and about, you know, what kids go through and but all these things through music, through art, through writing, you know, through producing all of these these genres, we bring them together. And then what we're hoping to do is once we're going to be releasing like four or five songs at a time and, you know, getting, getting the momentum we need. And then all the money we make will go towards sponsoring documentaries, go towards putting more music out, you know, billboards to combat the decades and decades of negativity right. and stereotype of addiction. We want to flood social media and do this. Now, prior to that, I did something called hashtag brown and white which was the two primary colors of heroin. And it was pretty amazing. And what I wanted it um, amazing in the fact that how it caught on, not that it was amazing that I thought of it, just amazing that it, it caught on. And what I was trying to do is get people to post pictures of their loved ones who had passed from an overdose and not be ashamed to post their picture and tell them who they were and, and that you love them and that they weren't, you know, worthless and they were very strong and they weren't weak and people started to post and all these pictures were going up. This woman, Tony had passed away and her family had kind of championed, you know, the hashtag brown and white. And she made these beautiful, like brown and white ribbons and pom poms kind of things. And her street had was filled with all of these in honor of her daughter and everyone that had died from, from an overdose. And it just kind of led to where we are now. And then, you know, I'm a big believer in God, you know, I, you know, I'm, and God has been putting people in my life that, that are, you know, musically, we're coming together, we're writing, we're writing music now, not to write hit, we're writing music that affects people. These are songs that give people hope and tell stories of pain and 
just music. I feel like I kept thinking, I kept blaming God when I was younger. You know, why, why would you give me a gift and not allow me to use it? What I didn't realize was it was never meant for me to use for that. It was meant for me to use for this. And when I got to a point where my music was being created, not for me, even though it gives me great uh, comfort, but the music that I write and the amazing writers that I work with and, 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 and Joe Niccolo and um, Joseph DeGioia and all these people came together and uh, Dean Smith and who had come and helped me with all this equipment. And this is God's work. And I tell people, this is one time I am super confident because God doesn't fail. We fail. And I am not the same person I was 10 years ago. I'm not the same person I was five years ago. I've made a lot of mistakes. And I, you know, I had a huge ego and was very self-centered and selfish. And in some way, I'm glad that life humbled me and life showed me what really was important, what really life was truly about. And I am in forever grateful that I got a second chance to be a better version of what God created me to be. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I miss my son every day. I always will. Here's another myth I'd like to clear up. I do not believe that one grief is greater than another. So I, I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying grief is grief, okay? Here's the difference, though, with losing a child. People go, losing a child is the worst conceivable thing anyone can think of. And then we wonder, well, why would they say that? Because when you, you love a spouse or you love your mom or you love your dad, that pain is horrific. It's real. That grief is real. Why would someone else's grief be worse than your grief? It's, it's, it's not a matter of one grief being worse than the other. Here's the problem. When we're a child, we are always taught from children, my mom and pop pop aren't always going to be here. We're going to lose them. Brothers, sisters, you have to learn to, to support each other because one day mommy and daddy aren't going to be here. And then we're told we need to put money away and we need to have a, a you know, a retirement money because one day one of the spouses are going to die before the other. And, you know, you need to be able to take care of that. Your aunts are going to die. No one, no one ever says growing up, oh, and by the way, your child could die. No one says it. So there's no place for the brain to put it. We expect that people that we love are going to pass away. Not our children, our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents, our parents, our spouses, our siblings. Yeah, we, it's, it's a horrible grief, but we know that's life. That's what happens. No one says, oh, and by the way, be prepared to carry your child to a hole and put them in the ground. So the brain has nowhere to put it. And I struggled with this and I struggled with it. So that's why I say to people, I'll just understand this. Don't assume that 20 years later, the person that lost a child is fine. 
My grandmother, I loved her with every fiber of my being. When she died, it was one of the worst blows I had ever experienced in my life. I think of her every day. I miss her, but I smile. It's my grandmother. She was crazy. Let's, my son should not be my memory. I should be his memory. So don't go and say, oh, well, it's been five years. I'm sure you're okay now. No, I'm not. And don't assume it. Know that it's different. I think I'm a, I'm a much better father to my two children now because I get it. I'm a better ex-husband. I'm a better boyfriend. I try to be a better human being to my friends. And, and it took 50-something years for me to understand what really is important. Your car, sorry. You drive a Bentley, I don't care. You know, what have you done for someone? You know, you got $25 million in the bank, great. What have you done? Did you give a million dollars away to charity because you needed a tax write-off? Well, you didn't do anything. You know, did you give somebody $10 because you got 10000 in your pocket? Well, it's nice. It's nice. But it's when you only got $10 in your pocket and you give it to someone to eat and you leave it with that, then you've done something. So, because when you die, the Bentley doesn't go with you. The bank account doesn't go with you. None of that goes. You know what goes with you? What did you do in your life to make some kind of difference? Was your entire existence about you and all that you can get and all the money that you can make? Or was it about, I'd like to make more money because there's more things I can do with that money. So again, and I'm not preaching like I'm, you know, like, oh, no one should have my, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, you work hard, you deserve things. You deserve, but understand that the, your existence is not built upon making tons of money, eating the best food, driving the best cars, and living in the biggest home. Your existence is, what can you do? A kid asked me, explain to me why we're here. Now, what? You know, <laughs> explain to me existence? And I thought about it. And this is what I told him, and I really believe this to be true. I said, here's what I'd like you to think. You want to know why you're alive? Okay. I said, the world, the universe is made up of positive and of negative energy. Okay? There's a balance of that. Now, outside of this world, there's positive and negative realms. You need to think of yourself as a battery. Okay? So what are you supposed to do? You try to be a battery energized with positivity. And they looked at me and I said, but I'm not done. Being a positive battery is not enough. What you need to try to do is take that positive battery and in some way try to connect with someone who has a negative battery 
and fill their battery with that positive energy. And I think it's literally as simple as that. I don't think it's more complicated than that. You know, just turn someone's negativity or try into positive. Understand that no matter how bad you have it, no matter what your woes are, I promise you there are people somewhere else that would trade places with you in a heartbeat and always be grateful. Someone said to me, what, you don't, you don't get disappointed anymore. And I don't. And they were like, how do you not get disappointed? I don't expect anything. And I believe, again, just me, not preaching. I believe that when I want something or I want to do something or I want a position or a job, whatever it is I want, and I work hard and I don't get it, in my mind, I think that's not where God wants me. He wants me somewhere else. So I don't get mad and go, I can't believe that I worked so hard and I didn't get it. This world sucks and it's unfair and it's hard. I just go, you know what, Tone? God needs you somewhere else. He'll tell you where to go. If you listen, just let him drive and you be the passenger. And I promise you, you will crash much less. And in everything I get, I am absolutely 1 billion percent grateful. Totally, unbelievably grateful. I don't care what it is. So I don't, I'm not living that life anymore. You know, my son is right here in the studio. I look at him every day and I wish I was a better father. And I wish I was the kind of father that he needed, but I wasn't. But I try every single day to be that father for my other two children and my grandkids. And when I speak, I try to let people understand that, you know what? As much as you think that your child wants that $5,000 computer that you have to work 80 hours a week for, I can promise you they'd rather have an hour of your time than the computer. So if you have a choice to work an extra 20 hours because, you know, you got to get that brand new car, I would say maybe spend five of those hours with your children or the people that you love because when you're dead, the only thing you're going to remember is those times. You're not going to remember the 85 hours you worked. You're not going to remember the piece of jewelry you bought or the car that you drove. You're going to remember the times and the people in your life and the times you spent with them. We all have to work. I'm not saying, you know, and we have to work hard. I'm just saying we have got to learn to find time for the people that we love. Because if we don't, you wake up and your life has gone by or tomorrow you can wake up and someone that you love more than life itself will not be here. Build a bit. I know this is a business podcast and we have not talked about business. I apologize that we haven't, but no, it's an important message though. And, and um, very sorry for your loss, of course, but do you think that a lot of what you're creating now with sound mind network and 
what you're doing now, there seems to be a bit of a difference. You're more collaborative. There is no ego. Um, you yourself have said that, you know, it's not about you anymore. Now it's about the mission and the message and, and the achievement of trying to destigmatize all of these issues around mental health. And do you think that that maybe in part is why you're finding huge success in your sort of second coming as a musician now? I think that, I, I think that there's a lot of truth in positive attracts positive and negative attracts negative. I also believe that when your agenda is pure, I believe that the universe works with you. You know, I, look, I, I happen to be a Christian, but I, res I truly do respect every single religion. I respect everyone's right to believe in what they want to believe in. I respect everyone's right to not believe in God. I can only tell you what I feel. I don't push it on anyone. I just say, this is my belief, and that's fine. But I do believe that there are certain truths in the universe. I believe energy is real. I believe that positive energy is real. I believe negative energy is, is real as well. And I do believe like attracts like. And I believe that if you put out a positive message and people know that it's coming from a place that's true, I think that people want to be around other people that are positive, especially when we're feeling sad and negative and low. And I just think that the more positivity I try to put out, you know, I, I, I told a woman at a, a, a speaking event once, and she was crying, and I said, are you okay? And she says, I feel horrible for what I'm thinking. I'm like, okay, what are, you, what are you thinking that's so horrible? And she said, I heard you speak for an hour. I said, okay. And she says, and all I kept thinking about is, I don't want to be you ever. And I said, I'm speaking because I don't want you to be me either. So, so I think. Those are the things that you, that you truly take with you when you die. It's like, I really don't want her to feel what I'm feeling. I had a guy once say at a, a speaking event, and I was speaking, he went, you know, can I say something? I'm like, yeah. He goes, look, you know, Tony, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss and all, but, you know, you're only here because they pay you. And I went, excuse me? He said, well, you're here. Like, everyone else comes, they speak. And you get pissed. Let me explain something to you, sir. I have never taken one penny to speak. Do you honestly think that I would capitalize on the death of my child? I have never taken a penny to speak at a recovery house. I have never taken a penny to speak to parents who have lost a child. And let me tell you something. I've been offered great money. And there were times... I was literally didn't know how I was paying the next bill. And people go, teach Tony Luke. Well, let me tell you something. Fallacy, bull. You have no concept 
of what to the brink that I was brought to, that I fight back every day to get there. So whatever, whatever image you think you have of me is wrong. And I still didn't take the money. And I wouldn't. I would rather be living in a box than accept money for people who are suffering. I'll never do it. And I had a gentleman come to me recently. He goes, would you, would you go to college or business and speak about your life? Yeah. Would you be okay if the colleges paid you? Yeah. Speak about my life? Yeah. It's like writing a book. Are they suffering with addiction? Are they people that lost children? Then the answer is no. Then no, I won't take any money. Because I generally don't want anyone to be in this club. It is the worst club on the planet. And I say every time in a speech, and I'd like to say it now, my son truly believed with every fiber of his being that if he were dead, everyone that loved him would be better. Because that's how low he thought of himself. And he was wrong. I also believe that there is absolutely no such thing as a lost cause. You're a lost cause when there's no more breath in your body. Until then, I hear people speak, my, my son, oh, yeah, I get it. You hate the disease. You know, there's guidelines. Like, I get it. I'm not telling everybody. Enable, that's not, never is my message. But understand that as long as there's breath, in your body, there is hope. And if you truly want to help a loved one who is suffering from addiction, you need to figure out a way to understand, to find out what is it that they are self-medicating. What is so horrific inside of them that death is better to them than facing that issue. Don't give up on them. Don't. Just try as much as you can. Look, you're not God. We can't wave our hand and, and make someone well, but we can always be there for them. I'm not saying we have to give in to them or enable them. I don't. I remember telling my son, I love you. You can't continue to do or behave the way you're behaving. But when you want help, I'm here. You're hungry, I'll feed you. I'm not giving you money. You need clothes, I'll get you clothes. I'm not giving you money. But I'm here for you. When you knock on the door and you go, I want help, I will move mountains to get you help. And that's all I'm saying to people. Don't close the door on them where there's never a way for them to knock on the door. It's a very powerful message. And thank you again for, for sharing all of that with us. And I'm very sorry that 
every single person that listens to your podcast will probably <laughs> turn it off in the first 10 I, minutes. I honestly, and I go, strongly I give doubt Tony that. Luke whine about his life. I strongly doubt that. But going back, can we go back to Tony Luke's for a split Let's second? Let's do it. Let's, Let's go do back some real business. Quick. Going back to, to uh, that was a very powerful message and, and thank you for, for sharing that. And I think it is important because a lot of what you're doing now is super powerful and is really important. But going back to that, that day that you, your father and your brother finally have completed the creation of Tony Luke's of the first one on Argon Ave, you, you look to your father and you say, we did it. What was your feeling in that moment? Honestly? Yeah. Remember, you're dealing with Tony, positivity, Tony. I'm like, we're going to be the biggest cheese. <laughs> no, we're going to be the biggest sandwich shop in the world. We're going to have 150 locate. And my father's like, could we open the damn doors first? <laughs> You're such a dreamer, always dreaming. How about put a little work in instead of dreaming about 100 stores? Here was the change. Here's what I knew. I knew that we were a sandwich shop in the city of 1,000 sandwich shops. Plus, people go, oh, they got the greatest location. Right. No, we didn't. Right. When we opened up that place, no one was going down. Trucks were going up and down. No one went to that corner. It was the old doggy diner, like nothing. So I remember calling Prism, and I convinced my father into letting me do, you know, like, let me, let me do my thing. I said, I want to make a commercial. So I went to Prism, and I said, I want to do a commercial for cable. And they said, okay, well... Uh, they talked to me like, here's what we're going to do. So we'll come in and we'll, you know, we'll take some pictures of you in the grill. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're not, we're not going to show any food being made. And I remember the, the woman said, what, what do you mean? You, you have, it's, it's a restaurant, right? Well, like, yeah, but we're not going to show any food. Well, what are we going to do? Okay, here's how it works. There's two convicts and they break out of a chain gang thing because one of them can't wait for parole he has to get a Tony Luke sandwich. Then they bring his son in, the police, because they get, and she's like, are you serious? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, well, I'm not going to do it. I'm like, well, I didn't ask you to do it. I'm going to pay you to film it. Well, the director won't direct it. I'm like, well, I don't want him to direct it. I'm going to direct <laughs> it, tell him what I want. And I literally remember fighting with them to take the job. And they were basically like, this is the most asinine thing and I did um, the first Tony Luke commercial. And I knew that it would get two reactions. People would go, that's really hilarious. Or that guy is the biggest, most giant ass on the planet. But I knew two things that were important. You would watch it. And whether you liked it or you hated it, you'd be talking about Tony Luke's. And then people would go, what is Tony Luke's? It's wild. What is it? A sandwich? What it? To get them to come. And then I did Forrest Luke, which was a play on um, Forrest Gump. And I did this thing. And I remember, you know, it was, and all of these crazy, then I go to every radio station and break. The whole idea was I need to get people here, get people here. And I always thought out of the box. And, the, and then I did the cartoon. So I want to do a cartoon of um, um, Double O Luke, which was a secret agent who had these female ninjas as protection, and he needed to defeat the evil Dr. Sal Manila. And, <laughs> and he, you know, he stole the recipe This So I go and I call a company up and I go, I'd like to, you know, do a cartoon. And they were like, 
how long? And I'm like, I don't know, a minute. We'll do a minute cartoon. And they were like, well, it's 100000 I'm like, oh, what? What? Like, it's $100,000. It's a minute cartoon. You write some stuff and it's like, do you have any idea how much work goes in to creating animation? And I'm like, well, I ain't got a hundred. You know, I ain't gonna. So my mind goes, hmm, let's go to the College of Art <laughs> and find an art student. So I go and I find this gentleman named Mike. Never forget it. And I said, Mike, I have this idea. And he goes, oh, this is great. And I'm like, I need a minute, you know, a minute commercial. Can you do it? Yeah, I can do it. Like, he was a student. I can do it. I can, I can do it. I can do it. I'm like, all right. Six months. Right. Eight months. A year. Over a year goes by. Here he comes. I'm done. You're done? He said, well, Tony, I had to, I had to do the background, <laughs> and then I had to take pictures, and I had to do it when school was closed. I couldn't do it during the class. Right. And we did Double O Luke, and it won, like, all of these awards for wow. Best Animated Amazing. Commercial, and it got everyone's attention. And the product, my father and my brother did such an amazing job in, you know, making the product and, you know, making the greens and the roast pork and, you know, on the grill and doing, like, it was amazing. And in my eyes, it was like, oh, my God, this is the perfect marriage. There's my dad who is this workhorse who has these recipes and he's, you know, he's a builder and he can cook and he can build houses. Like there's nothing he can't do. And here's my brother, Nikki, who's like my dad, he's in the commissary and he's made. And then here I am out there doing TV, doing radio. Like this is the team. It's the, it's the trifecta of of success in the business. But that's not how they looked at it. You know, my father was old school. It's like, is he behind the grill making a sandwich? Because if he's not, he's worthless. So he never looked at the publicity, the TV shows, the none of that had value to him. And I tried to make him see it. And I could see where he he wouldn't. Now, you know, I don't blame him for that. And that's a whole nother, that's another book on my relationship with my dad. But um people were coming. A lot. And then people were seeing me do these crazy things. I had Petey dressed as an ostrich and we went through Center City and, you know, we were selling ostrich burgers at one point. <laughs> and I always was an out-of-the-box thinker and I always thought marketing is what matters. If you have a good product, what's essential is marketing and customer service. And I remember we didn't take numbers, we took names. Let me tell you something. Taking names in South Philly, 1992, <laughs> not a good thing. Hey, give me a cheesesteak, extra fried on your name. Oh, what, what are you? You, you writing a book? <laughs> I'm like, no, your name. I'm not giving you my name. What do you want my name for? I'm like, I want to give you your food. Well, I gave you my order. Give me my food. I'm like, yeah, I go, you know what? Your name is Frank. I'm just going to give you a name. You don't want to give me a name? It's Frank. And then I would be yelling, Frank, Frank. And he'd be like, Frank. And he'd go, my name's not Frank. I'm like, well, you wouldn't give me your name. So it's Frank now. And then we genuinely cared about the people that came. You know, my father had always instilled something in me that I'd really want to pass on is that people can spend their money anywhere. Why should they spend it at your restaurant or your place of business? Because you have to not fake that people are important to your business. You have to know 
that people are important. And when someone comes up to that window and orders food and you go, hey, Frank, how's your family? Right. You have to be sincere. Because when Frank eats and he talks about his family, and he comes the next day and he goes, hey, Tom, my kid, you know, he made first string on the football team. Well, that is awesome. Make sure he comes. We'll give him, uh, he'll get free fries. This is, uh, you know, it became a family atmosphere. So it was like, they weren't just coming to get a cheesesteak because they can get a cheesesteak anywhere. They were coming because it was part of their family. Because customer service, which today for some reason is non-existent, yeah. is the base, the foundation yep. of, of what your product is. You need a good product. You need amazing customer service and you need to let everyone know that is in your place of business, that they are welcome. You want them there. You care that you're there and you understand that they're spending money. If they sit in a restaurant and it costs them $150 for a meal, you know how long someone has to work to make $150? Oh yeah. So make sure they get it and they understand and you treat them the right way. Now, look, can you please everyone? No, but you try. And I believe that marketing, the key to Tony Luke's success were three things. Three exact things. My father and my brother's work ethic. The food that we made and the marketing that we did. I truly believe in my heart that it Tony Luke's wouldn't be Tony Luke's if it wasn't for those three factors. So even though me and my father, well, he doesn't speak to me. I would speak to you in a minute, Dad, if you would. Or my brother, they don't. It doesn't take away from the fact that if there's no my father and no my brother, there's no Tony Luke's. So as far as family goes, those that are in the family business, here's the greatest piece of advice that I can give you. Respect each other and understand that not everyone is good at everything and that let people shine in what they're good at. And what one person does has no more value than what the other person does. There's value in everything that a family does when they come together. And if you understand that value and you recognize that value, not only will you be successful as a business, but you'll be successful as a family. And was out of the box thinking, it was marketing. It was nonstop marketing that led to appearances on the Food Network, that led to a national TV series, that led to me being on TV every single day that led to me writing the movie, The Nail, mm -hmm. which was incredibly successful. In fact, it's on Amazon Prime now, and it's doing incredible there. And the movie was made in 2009, doing Invincible and playing the Cape Clad. Like all of those things made people say the word Tony Luke's when they weren't talking about food. So that when they were thinking about food, they've been talking about Tony Luke's all day about either a commercial or a movie or or, 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 or series, whatever it is, subliminally, you're like, yeah, let's go to Tony Luke's. And the food was good. And the service was good. And we appreciated people coming. And it broke my heart when it fell apart at the original store. Broke to this day. 
but I'm not going down. And I will survive. And I will come back. And I, 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 I will come back better because I think I'm a better human being than I was before. So no matter how far, I, I'm already a winner. Like I've, I've already, I've already won, even if there's not a hundred stores and that because I'm just, I think I'm a better human being than I was. And I mean, isn't that the, I mean, really, isn't that the goal? Just be a better human being, you know? Now with you at some point decide, and I remember this cause I remember trying these at the link. I was at an Eagles game and it was the first time they had the Tony Luke's at home cheesesteaks in the pouches, right? Yeah, that and they, was, it was a great idea. They were doing the promo. I remember trying it. It was actually pretty was good, I right, thought. Yeah. So what did you <laughs> what did you think about about that long term? Was that a good decision? Was that a bad decision? What went wrong? I think that every decision that we make can be a bad decision or a positive decision. It's just how we look at it. I'm not trying to be philosophical. It's yeah. just the truth. I could say, well, that didn't work. So that was a bad decision. Or I could say to you, it didn't work, which forced me to figure out a better way to do it, which now does work better than anything ever. It's it, it, it never, I couldn't believe the success of, you know, 18 months of getting the bread correct and the way right. the meat is done. When I tell you, you put that sandwich in your oven and you take it out, it is, I'm saying it is absolutely delicious. You would never believe that it just came out of an oven. Never. And that has been the response on QVC and everywhere right, we've gone right. and you know, all of these things that we're building now because the direction of the brand is going that way now. Right. And that's, to me, that is part of the, the, the evolving Tony Luke's. The franchises are still as important. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the stores where you go and they make is important but it's just an evolution. Right. It, your business should always be growing. It's when you stay stagnant and you hold on to these old ideals and be like, well, this is all we do and we're not, we're not changing. You know, I always give the example from a movie I saw one, I think it was called Other People's Money with Danny DeVito. And he says, things evolve. He says, I'm sure the guy that made a buggy whip for a carriage and a horse, the best buggy whip there was, was probably the last person that went out of business, but he went out of business. Right, exactly. When you start getting a bigger share of a decreasing market, it's the end. Right. So you need to be open-minded. You need to develop, constantly be developed. Never, never fall into complacency. Complacency is the killer of all business. Complacency is the, is the killer of life. One of my quotes or mantras is that complacency is the mother of all evil. I wouldn't disagree with you. It's, it's the word, but you know, we tend to do it, but you know where it comes from? It goes back to the human nature. It goes back to ego and being self-centered. Like I don't need right. it. Right. I'm great. Right. I, I don't need to be, you know, I, I, I heard, um, I want to say it was Herbie Hancock. Do not quote me, uh, but, but I believe it was Herbie Hancock. They had talked to him about being a master pianist and, and he said, um, no one can ever master anything. We can continue to grow 
and be better and better at something. But I can promise you, if you live to be 100 years old and you die, you still have not mastered. There's no way to reach perfection. You can only try to get better and better. Right. And that's the same thing I believe that in music, I believe it in business, and I believe it in life. I'm sure I'm going to die not being the man I truly want to be, but I will die trying to be that man. Now, how much energy do you typically spend comparing yourself and, and or your businesses to competitors and to other people, or do you just blaze your own trail and that's it, whoever wants to follow? I have never, I'd always said, I've always told people, if you're looking at your competitor to the left or you're looking at your competitor to right, or you're looking at the competitor behind you, how the hell can you see where you're going? That's a great point. Here's the truth. No business can ever put you out of business. Only you can put you out of business. If I own a restaurant and then a guy opens up next to me or a, a woman, I keep saying guy because it's just my thing. But yeah, no worries. Someone, I'm just saying if a woman or a, a gentleman or a group of people open up a business next to me that sell the same food as me, why would people leave me and me go bankrupt if I continue to give good service and the best product I can? I may lose some business. To someone else, people may want to go over and try it. And then some people may say, okay, well, you know what? I think their food's a little better, you know, but Tony's got good food too. So maybe we'll, it's when you offer horrible uh, customer service, when you get complacent about the places and you don't care anymore what the food tastes like because you've got all these people coming, you don't need it. It's when you got a business. I, I did say this once to a group of business people when they would say, well, you know, Every, every complaint that I had ever gotten when I was at the original store, mm -hmm. I would answer immediately. Even when I, I honestly knew the complaint was maybe not so valid. I would answer and I would try to make it right. And I remember someone coming to me going, dude, you got a line that stretches from your window, your ordering window to under the bridge on 95. Yeah. You really care with one person who had an issue don't. And I said, the day that you stop caring about the one person with the issue is the day the line gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Amazing. So what do you say to people that say you should stay in your lane? You should stick to what you're good at. You know, I know you talked about your strengths and your weaknesses, and obviously that's something that you iterate over and over about yourself. But quite frankly, you've been really, really good if not phenomenal at many things. I mean, it was surreal to me walking in here and you were sharing a lot of the music that you've created with us, which by the way, I'm very thankful just for that moment in time. You're a phenomenal singer. You're now becoming a phenomenal pianist. Even I'm a horrible <laughs> piano player, but thank you. I, I watched you play with my own two eyes <laughs> and I would a disagree. Player, and you, you learned how to play how long ago? Two years ago, maybe 18 months. 19. Wow. And incredible. So what do you say to those people who say, no, you can only be good at one thing. If you're a jack of all trades, you're a master of none. Of none. Yeah, that's an old saying. Okay. Um, there are certain instances when people need to stay in their lane because when they go out of their lane, they're disruptive of something that they don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. But saying that, 
if you're going to go into another lane, you need to have some knowledge of that lane. You need to have passion for that lane. And I believe that anyone thinks that people can only be good at one thing and should only do one thing are people that are seriously missing out on life. You can be a great doctor and be a great piano player. You can be a great sports figure and be a great dancer. You could be a great business person. You could be, you, why does society say, well, you know, I literally I've had people come up to me and go, Hey, Tone, uh, what do you do? And I go, I really can't answer that question. I'm like, why? Because if I answer the question, honestly, you will look at me and think I'm an asshole. (laughs) And I'm like, well, they would go, why? I said, because if I answered it honestly, I'm, I'm a cook, I'm a restaurateur, I'm an actor, I'm a stand-up comic, I am a piano player, I am a musician, a songwriter, a storyteller, a speaker, and av- so, I mean, if I said that to you, you go, ooh, you're so full of yourself. So I go, I do things. Uh, that's I, what I go, I go, I do different things. I wouldn't say that to you, but. Those Most who know me would, would say the same about me. You know, probably say, call me an asshole as well. So, <laughs> so why can't we be all the things that right. we love yep. if we're even remotely good at it? Um, remotely good at it. Why? Why can't we do that? So, I encourage right. people to don't stay in your lane if there's other lanes that you know how to drive in. It it becomes an issue. I, I'll give you an example. I'm not great at business. Business. I'm not. I have a COO that runs my company, John Moser, and he's brilliant. My partner, Ray Rustelli, brilliant. So when we're at a meeting and we're talking to attorneys and accountants, you know who shuts up? Me. Because I don't know what this is. You know, the, the balance and the bottom line and the quarter. I, if I say, well, I, don't, I listen and I want to learn. Right. And oh, here's a, another great lesson I like to, that I learned that I'd like to pass on to someone. Never, ever be ashamed. Never, ever feel bad that you don't know something. There have been meetings that I have been in with attorneys and accountants and other business people and that, that look up to me like they go, oh, Tony Luke's here and you got 20 and, and then they would say something and I go, excuse me, I don't know what that word means. And they would go, oh, it means this. No, I would not feel one because if that guy thought right. less of me because I didn't know what the the the, the four syllable college word meant, then you're full of yourself and you're an ass. Yeah, exactly. And I don't really care what you think about me. Yep. Never be afraid to go. I don't understand. You know how many people I've met that have done deals, and I'm like, why did you do that? Well, I don't understand. Well, why didn't you? Well, I didn't want them to think I was yep. stupid. Right. Exactly. The stupid thing is not to ask. Yep. No, and there's a great point to that because there's a there is an old adage. So I am actually a lawyer full time, um, and that's why people probably think I'm an asshole yeah, and should stay in my lane. Isn't he? Yeah, I know it's brag. all ego. Um, but uh, but but there is there is an adage and something that I believe in that legalese is used purposely to mystify people and to confuse you and to make you sound really big and important. But if you truly understand a concept, and this isn't just in the law, this isn't anything. If you truly understand a concept, then you should be able to explain it such that a layman would understand it from listening to you explain right. it. 
If you really do, if you right. really do understand something. That's a so, great line. So the bigger true. the words that people are saying, the less they understand, generally speaking. That is a great, great sentence. That is a great way to put it. Because I literally heard that years ago from someone that said, if you can't explain it. Right. So that someone who doesn't understand it can understand it, you don't understand. Exactly. Exactly. hundred percent true. So what's one of your character traits or personality traits that you're the most proud of? My ability to constantly try to change for the better. I think that that is something that was difficult for me to learn. But if you said to me, Tony, if there's anything about you that you're proud of or, or anything that makes you smile is, my ability to accept things I can't change, but grow from the mistakes that I've made. And every morning that I wake up, I can honestly tell you, I truly want to be a better man. Well, thank you so much, Tony. This was an unbelievable episode. Um, so much to unpack and, and just a wonderful time. And I consider myself honestly, truly blessed to have had these few hours just sitting here with you, listening to your story. Well, I got to tell you, and I mean this with all sincerity, I am for, I'm beyond honored and flattered because um, I know what you do and I know how well-respected because, of course, I have to check on you before you come over. Um, <laughs> An Italian from South Philly was looking into my background. I don't know about this. <laughs> no, just, just check in. I'm just kidding. And, I'm you know, and, and I, again, I am, I, I'm grateful. I don't know. I'm not, you know, not the greatest businessman. I just, I love marketing. I think I'm good at that. Um, but um, anytime I can share my story. So hopefully if someone hears it and they're not feeling too good about themselves, they'll realize that, you know, whatever life throws at you, you can survive it. You will survive it. And as long as you look at it in a way where you can make yourself better for it, then there's always hope. Thank you again, Tony. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate it.